0: We are on week three of a 12-week series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And week one, we took a historical tour, a jet tour through the city of Corinth and some of the historical context of this book. And then last week, we studied the first nine verses of chapter one, the introduction where Paul delivered an amazing foundation of our identity in Christ. Who are we He taught us how to view ourselves and how to view each other, especially when we and they are weak in the faith and messing up. Paul reminds us that everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is called by God and sanctified. They are made holy. They are set apart as saints in the family of God, even though they're still sinners. And thank God for that truth, because that's all of us. We are family And there's an unshakable hope that we share. And why do we share that hope? Verse 9 told us, because God is what? Faithful. God is faithful. Perhaps three of the most powerful and hope-giving words in the entire book of Scripture. And Paul launches this letter to the Corinthian church based on who we are in Christ and the faithfulness of God that keeps us in that position before him. Our confidence, our sanctification, our hope lies in nothing less than the unwavering and unfailing consistency of God's goodness and truth. And His faithfulness is why you and I can sincerely thank Him for each other. That grateful view helps us to lovingly see each other in spite of faults. What does Psalm 133 say? Again, that Paul mentioned how beautiful, how good, and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Again, when we have a grateful view for each other, it enables us to see each other well in spite of our faults. It's the beautiful harmony and unity in a church full of saved sinners that only God can bring. That Psalm 133 that I just mentioned, how good, how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. In modern terms, that's like saying, would you look at that? A church family that knows how to get along. That's a great thing. That's what we want here for our church family. That's what we want in the greater church of God. We're looking at the rocket of thankful unity that is fueled by the faithfulness of God. And Paul launches this whole book on this. You and I, we as a church family, have no idea how far God can take us and how much good He can do in us and in our homes and in this community as a church family if we will but take these first nine verses to heart. They're a wonderful introduction to this book, but unfortunately the book didn't end at verse 9. Paul now begins, as you know, he begins to address for the next 15 and a half chapters the problems, the issues in the Corinthian church. And it is of no small significance that the first issue he addresses is the issue of disunity. This speaks volumes to the importance of this point and how much it impacts everything else he is going to say in this book. Again, these writers don't sit and type and cut and paste as thoughts come. No, they think carefully through as they write this out on parchment and go through great pains to have it delivered to great lengths. One of the greatest discredits to the church and their witness for Christ is their plethora of divisions. It's like you can just pick up a dart, close your eyes and throw it and you will hit something that Christians can't agree upon. You'll hit something that causes rifts in the church and divides it into countless religious factions, even within one church body. Sometimes it's not, as we're going to see, it's not our outright sins that divide us so much as it is our haughty devotion, as the ESV Study Bible puts it. Guzik had this to say in his commentary. There was an old, contentious Quaker who went from one meeting to another, never finding the true church. Someone once said to him, well, what church are you in now? He said, I am in the true church at last. How many belong to it? Just my wife and myself, and I'm not sure about her sometimes. (laughs) I looked up the word faction in the thesaurus, and it gave me words like sides, parties, clans. Gangs. And you know which term hit me the most. It's the gangs. That kind of hits the nail on the head there. It's groups that quarrel and fight against each other nonstop. Not here in the church with weapons, but with words, with attitudes, with associations, with gossip, arrogance, a lack of genuine friendship and fellowship with each other. All so we can say sometimes is ouch. But now that you can't wait to see what Paul has to say, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at what he says yet next on this issue of disunity in the church and what we can do to solve this. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 17 today. So listen as I read chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. But that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this: that each one of you is saying, "I am of Paul," and "I of Apollos," and "I of Cephas," and "I of Christ." Has Christ been divided? Was was uh, was Paul was not crucified for you? Was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Chrysippus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I did not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void." What a series of verses, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truths that you share so freely and abundantly with us. Lord, you have not just saved us, but you have left us with your spirit and with truth so that we might honor you in your name, so that we might know then how we should live. Lord, we ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is to help us understand the words we have just read. Help us to see our hearts and our lives, our behaviors, as you see them. And Lord, help us to respond how you would have us to respond. I don't believe there's a person in this place, Lord, who loves disunity, who savors faction. Lord, surely we all long to be one, for there to be peace, and love, and faithfulness, and joy together. All of us longs to have others who will come alongside us and share deeply in our joys and in our sorrows. Lord, you have designed for the church to be one. That's what we pray for this morning. And we thank you that you will give us a little bit more of it this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we look at the issue of disunity in the church, I absolutely have to preface this message by saying how thankful to God I am for the unity that He has given our church family. Not just that unity in Him, you know, positionally as believers kept by the power of God, but the unity He gives us in honoring and preferring one another. I thank God for that. As a a young pastor, stepping into the pulpit as I am, following in the, the footsteps of a great man of God, I can't tell you what a joy it is to step into a church family like this. I'm well aware that many pastors... I don't say most, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's the truth, are called into churches because the church was not unified and the pastor had to leave. I've corresponded in the last 24 hours with a pastor in such a position. God calls the church to unity and by His grace alone, you and I will continue to humble ourselves before Him and before each other and in honor prefer one another and he will continue to bless us with oneness for the sake of the gospel I thank my God always for you but there is room to grow there's always room to grow there always will be this side of glory room to grow that's what keeps us looking to the word It's what keeps us so dependent on the Lord so let's go back to verse 10 and work our way through this text verse 10 says now I exhort you. The King James Version reads that this way, I beseech you. The ESV says, I appeal to you. This is similar to Paul's approach in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 where he said, I urge you, brethren. There is a clear sense here of Paul not lording over the believers or demanding their adherence to what is right by use of a heavy-handed guilt and shame tactics. And if anybody had the wordsmithing ability to level a series of verbal grenades, it was Paul. He wrote more of the New Testament books than any other author. He was incredibly educated. He was a powerful and influential man as we saw on both sides of the church, both as their persecutor and then as their leader. He was a strong man, but instead of taking that strength and hammering the believers, even from his position of authority, he lovingly and urgently, as a caring father, pled with them to do what is right. Listen to Gil's commentary on this verse. He says, In the most kind and tender manner, Paul entreats them to take every proper step, to prevent schisms among them. He does not use his apostolic power and authority or lay his injunctions and commands upon them, which he might have done, meaning which he could have done, but most affectionately beseeches them, styling them brethren, as they were in a spiritual relation, being children of the same Father, members of the same body and partakers of the same grace. That is the difference between law and love. Now, without dividing in, or without diving into a headlong study on this point, there's some pretty low hanging fruit for us to pick here. Again, Paul is still laying some foundational truths that are needed to make the most of this whole book. But we see right here a clear, clear example and exhortation to all of us, especially, shall I say, parents. We need to remember this spirit of exhortation when it comes to the discipling and correcting of our children how I needed to be reminded of this this past week, yesterday. When we work through our issues as spouses or as friends in the church, let us be mindful to consider the most appropriate approach that the situation calls for. We saw the same vital lesson in our James study on how to approach others when we see faults in them. James 1, 19, 20 said, This you know, my beloved brethren. See, the apostles all had this sense of sincere love and care for the family of God. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Here in the Corinthian church, in this instance, this situation, of sexual depravity and corruption, this instance of drunkenness during communion and lawsuits between church members, just to name a few, Paul still didn't resort to a tirade of angry condemnation and oppressive shaming. How much more and how much like so we also should avoid such an outburst approach? when one of our kids forgets to put the lid on the orange juice, or says an unkind word to a sibling, or is late to get ready for church, etc., we need to remember that our approach is often like the release of the arrow. It largely determines general direction. Paul understood this at the start of this letter. He continued to go on. He said, Now I exhort you, brethren, again, a highlight and an emphasis on unity and the family bond that we have in Christ Jesus. We're in this together. He said, Brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning, this isn't this Paul's idea or Paul's opinion or Paul's doctrine. This is based on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, our Dad in a sense, said this. This is coming. This is His Word. The name of That includes everything that has to do with a person. The name represents everything that is them. Their character, their action, their desires, their commands. I've mentioned before that it's like someone saying in the medieval times, open this door, what? In the name of the king. The name carried the authority and the power of the one being referenced. And Paul is saying, what I'm telling you aligns with the name of Jesus Christ. This is His will for the church. And He has the the power to equip us to fulfill it. What we're talking about addresses the way that you and I hold His name on high. This is all about His name. The issue of division in the church and disunity in the church isn't all about our relations. It's not about primarily peace for our sakes, It's not about our relational happiness. It's not about our friendships and good times. This issue revolves around the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, His reputation, His will, His commands for the church. This is what God demands of us by and for His name. Paul then says that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. We'll stop there for a moment. Three points, first point. This is one of those classic, classic verses that can what? Get pulled massively out of context. If you build a philosophy on that last phrase that we just read, if you build a philosophy on that alone, you come up with modern ideas like, can't we all just get along? Can't we just love each other? Why can't we set aside our differences, even our doctrines if that's what it takes, so that we can get along? Why can't we just accept each other the way they are? Have you heard that on your college campus or in the workplace or in that self help book? Next thing you know, anything goes in the name of peace and in the name of love. Everything is accepted. Or tolerated, to use the politically correct word, everything except the authority of Scripture and the demands for Christ likeness. Now, sure, on the surface, there's a little bit of wisdom to some of those phrases I just mentioned, but it's only on the surface. They quickly break down. And we want more than superficial advice to bank our lives on. We want the wisdom of God that transcends time, transcends Cultures and societies transcends situations. So to understand the intent of Paul's statement, we definitely have to factor in this whole section of verses. So what does Paul mean when he says that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment? Second point here, this is one of those verses where you can find 10 different Christian interpretations from 10 Christian authors In 10 Christian minutes or less. And don't ask me what a Christian minute is. (laughs) Friends, there is a scripture interpretation principle that will save you and me from a thousand different interpretation rabbit trails and subtle lies. Finish the sentence if you know it. Let scripture interpret scripture. Before I give you what I believe is the simple, straightforward, contextual uh, interpretation of that last phrase. Let me first point out a few wrong interpretations. These are more common than you and I realize. And they go something like this. What does all agree mean? Well, it doesn't mean everyone totally agree. It means agree when you can and then agree to disagree. Well, what does no divisions mean? Well, it doesn't mean that there won't be groups with differing views in the church i mean that's impossible right of course there's going to be some good healthy differences of opinion and even interpretation that kind of separates the church that's what keeps us sharp iron on iron right well what about the same mind well that doesn't mean that we all have the exact same thoughts again that's not even possible either no church exists where everyone is thinking exactly the same thing. So the same mind doesn't really mean the same mind. Do you know what what I mean? Well, what about the same judgment? What does that mean? Well, surely that doesn't mean everyone will come to the same conclusion all the time or always have the same goals or the same purposes is what, what the word refers to. That's never happened. It never will happen in the church. That's why we have votes in our board meetings. And in our church business meetings, that's why we let one teacher share their interpretation of a passage, and then we welcome someone else to share a different interpretation. And we wrestle through it, and sometimes we don't come to the same conclusions, etc., etc. This is what these verses mean. Is this what these verses mean? We will find out. What I've just laid out for you is man trying to fit God in a box, trying to fit Scripture in a box, man trying to lower the Word of God down to his own personal understanding and to what makes sense to him. This leads to countless wild goose chases in the Scripture. It's fueled by humanism and personal intellect. Paul has a lot to say about that, and we're going to look at that next week. For now, let's see what happens when we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Go back one verse. This is so simple and yet so profound. What does verse 9 say? What was Paul talking about only seconds before he gave us this verse, verse 10? In verse 9 he said, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's factor that into the interpretation. You were called into fellowship. That is partnership, togetherness, communion, Oneness, unity. With who? With each other? With the other Christians in your church? That's not what it says. Not with each other, but with who? With His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Quote, unquote. Yes, there will be fellowship with each other, but that fellowship comes as a result of fellowship with Jesus Christ. Those beautiful words, are they ringing in your mind right now from 1 John 1? Where Paul said, the things we've seen and we heard, we proclaim to you, so that you also may have fellowship with us. But our fellowship indeed is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The fellowship is with Him. Our fellowship is a byproduct. So with that understanding, we come to verse 10. This is the understanding we approach verse 10 with. Can we all agree? Can we refuse to be divided on this point that the one common bond, the completer, the great unifier of the church is not the guy or gal sitting next to you in the pew. It's not even the pastors. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It is His mind, the mind of Christ, the thoughts of Christ, the truths, the very words of Jesus that we find in Scripture that unite us and give us fellowship. And not only is it Christ's mind, His truth, but also His judgments, His conclusions. Again, a quick study on the Greek word used here shows that this word refers to His opinions, His advice, His purposes, His will, the end of the matter. What Christ thinks and what He concludes about it is what unites us. Now, some would say, but it's impossible for everyone to agree, even on what Jesus said. I quickly ask you back, does that even matter? If we can't all agree exactly on what what he says, does that change the bar? Does it change the command? Does it change the calling? We're also called to live holy on this earth, like God. All who can do it, raise your hand. Oh, so does that change the calling? No, it doesn't change the calling. The bullseye stays the bullseye. And the call to unity in the church, unity in mind and purpose with Jesus Christ does not change because we can't hit it perfectly. We strive toward it. We can and we should all agree with Christ. Even though we will not always agree with each other. Unfortunately, I will not always agree perfectly with Graham. No matter how committed I am, there will sooner or later come a point, probably a minor point, but nonetheless, sooner or later, he and I will refuse to agree on something. Maybe it's the amount of cream that may t- taste best in tea, maybe it's whether his wife's curry or my dad's steak is better. Whatever it is, there will be a point where we do not agree. And sooner or later, you all will find something to disagree about with the other people in this church. Contrary to popular opinion, that is not what this verse is asking for. It's asking for and even demanding that we all unite in agreement with God. We are called to agree without compromise that we will strive by the grace of God to conform every single ounce of our mind to the mind and the will of Jesus Christ. We must let that agreement unite us together operationally and relationally for the sake of the gospel. You understand, the work of Christ on the cross completely brings us together spiritually. And the mind of Christ increasingly brings us together practically and sanctificationally. Now, sanctificationally, I don't know if I just made up a word there or not, but for whatever it's worth, it was underlined in red in Microsoft Word, but sanctificationally, the mind of Christ is what allows us to be sanctified together this side of glory. Again, here's the question. Can we all, United as a church family, without compromise, agree that the Word of God is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Can we agree upon that wholeheartedly? Second Timothy 3:17. We should be absolutely undivided, in our estimation that unlike pop psychology and secular counselors, It is the Word of God alone that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 We should all come together and agree, both in doctrine and in practice, that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Psalm 19. Can we be one in the same mind in judgment on the source and the wellspring of truth? The tragedy in today's society, which is no different than 2,000 years ago in Corinth, the tragedy is that some people cannot agree on the source of truth. Some may acknowledge the Bible is true, but they don't think it's the only truth. Some think think that the Bible is true for the most part. This is the first issue, the first spiritual problem that Paul addresses in his letter. Authoritative truth and the church's unwillingness to unite in submission to it before he can address anything else He goes because he has to go here. The church was unwilling to let the word establish their mind and behavior. If we in the Corinthian church can't agree on the truth and the source of truth, then we're going to spin our wheels in religious debate and come out the other end still divided, still disagreeing. Philippians one twenty seven says to the church in Philippi, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. Remember, Paul hears things. Doesn't matter where he's at, he's hearing things. Remember, your pastors hear things. No, just kidding. Just kidding. It wasn't in my notes. Whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The oneness is not foundationally with each other. It's in our submission to the Word of God and our proclamation of the good news of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can we be one on this? Speaking of context, and speaking of scripture letting scripture interpret scripture, the next few verses give us even more insight on the issue of division in the church. Look at verse 11. He says, "For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you." Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, "I am of Paul," and I have of Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Just real quick, the ESV Study Bible has this comment to make. Apparently, one faction in Corinth claiming to be above it all, took the slogan, I follow Christ. Rest assured, they were not saying that in a good way. Paul is identifying them as one of the divisions in the church. He goes on to say, verse 13, "...has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul?" I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you would, would say you were baptized in my name. And just as a side note, this is one of the verses that helps us to see so clearly that baptism is not essential to salvation. If it was, Paul never would have said he was glad he didn't baptize any of you. That would be like saying, I'm so glad I wasn't the one who led you to Christ. Not possible. Verse 16. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any of you. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That's a lot to process. We step back and ask, what is the big picture here? What was the heart attitude? What was the primary issue that Paul was trying to address See, because you and I may not have the the same division titles that Paul has, but there's a heart to the issue that runs through the church through all time. And it's the heart attitude that we want to discern and look for and deal with and avoid by the grace of God. So first we see that the heart attitude issue here was a united submission to the authority of the Word of God, both in doctrine and in practice, both in what we believe and in how we live. So what's the big picture that Paul is addressing right here now? Here are three possibilities in a practical sense, and it could be one, it could be all of them, but here they are. The first possibility is that the church may have been taking pride in who led them to Christ. Let's be honest here. If Paul led you to the Lord, would you share your salvation testimony a little more frequently? Would you be inclined to call the Christian Post and see if maybe they'd like to run a national article on your conversion? I'll be honest with you. The thought would cross my mind. The world needs to hear about my salvation. It's amazing how far pride will reach into the heart of a person. If we're not careful, it'll taint even our salvation testimony. Think about it. If Billy Graham personally led you to Christ... Would you or I have maybe just a hint of superiority when we share our testimony and when we function in the church? As though we were somehow maybe just a little more spiritual or more special based on the circumstance surrounding our salvation. It's a chilling, scary, stupid thought, isn't it? But it's very real in the church as we're going to see. It separates believers into more and less spiritual groups if they're not careful it's a lie that divides. Let's look at the second possibility. Second is that they were proud of the teachings and truths that they understood. Some followed the teachings of Paul versus the teachings of Apollos. Who's Apollos? Paul was the very gifted speaker and teacher who pastored the church at Corinth after Paul left. Some followed the teachings of Cephas. Who's Cephas? The apostle Peter. And there were even some who bragged that they were following the teachings of Christ in opposition to the teachings of the other apostles. They were focusing on what they, were thought, what they thought were distinctions between the teachers. And perhaps they, there were. I mean, let's be honest. Peter and Paul didn't always see eye to eye, did they? But the issue is not that there were, that there were teachings or application distinctions The issue is that the distinctions resulted in sinful and hurtful and prideful divisions. It's doubtful that their distinctions were even accurate, especially those relating to core doctrines of the faith. Surely they were not distinct. More on that later. Here's a third possibility, closely related to the second. Perhaps these believers were taking pride in who they followed, not just the teachings, but in who they followed. Like the potential for pride in salvation, there is a potential for pride in associations. This is a different slant on, it's not what you know, it's who you know. This kind of pride would have been based on the assumption that one apostle or teacher was better than another apostle or teacher. And since they followed the better teacher, they were better than others. Are you following me on that? The conversation might have gone something like this. Thought, but of course, never spoken. I'm better than you because I follow Paul and he founded this church. Next guy comes along and says, yeah, well, I'm better than you because I follow Peter and he's the rock that this whole church stands on. And he was one of the original 12. Can you imagine how they had hung that over him? Peter was one of the original 12. Paul was an afterthought. And then, of course, Somebody else has to pipe in. Yeah, well, I follow Christ. Enough said. While no one would say these things out loud, the reality was that this attitude plagued the church, and it still does 2,000 years later. There's a dangerous, spiritually cancerous attitude of the heart that thinks, I'm right, and that makes me better than you. It makes me superior. It lessens you in my view. Of course, we would never say that. But there's an attitude there that creeps into the church so easily, so subtly. Thank God that attitude doesn't exist between Calvinists and Armenians. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you might be better off for it as long as you know that you have the opportunity and the responsibility to respond in faith to the grace of God that alone enables you to be saved, my guess is you'll make it to heaven just fine. And you might be a very humble and passionate witness for Christ as a result of it. For now, those are three distinct and likely possibilities that Paul was addressing. For all we know, it may have been all of them. Perhaps you're seeing some other possibilities. But let's not draw too many conclusions and applications before we get through the text. There's more to observe and learn from the next few verses. In verse 13, Paul asks three potent, laser-sharp, convicting questions. Number one, has Christ been divided? Is there more than one Christ? Does He share truth or glory with any man? And the answer is no. Regardless of the possible scenarios in the church here, here's what we know to be true. The Corinthian believers were acting as though Christ had been divided. They were acting as though there was more than one Savior, although they would never say it. They'd never say it. Question number two, which emphasizes question number one, was Paul crucified for you? Regardless of the possible scenarios, here's what we know to be true. The Corinthian church was acting as though Paul or Apollos or Peter had been crucified for them, even though they'd never say it. They were proud of their association with them and were holding them up as though they had Messiah-like qualities, Savior-like hope, Son of God-like truth in and of themselves. And Paul says, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? I imagine... Notice here, this is very interesting. Notice how he changed to the third person when he even mentions this. I have to think that he was so appalled and so disgusted with the thought he couldn't even repeat it in the first person. In all his humility, it's instead it's like he resorts to, Paul, that other guy, that other Savior of yours. He wasn't crucified for you, was he? What I'd give to see Paul at this point In all of his humility and love, I can only imagine he was about to lose his mind over the selfish and arrogant attitudes that were leading these Corinthian believers to so easily divide among themselves and hurt the church over it. They were willing to hurt the church over it. Question number three. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, regardless of our possible scenarios, here's what we know to be true. The Corinthian believers were acting as though they had been baptized in the name of Paul or Apollos, or whoever. So he asks an almost insulting question to help them see the error of their ways. Were you baptized in the name of Paul, that other guy who you think is your co-savior? Here's the shocker. He goes on in verses 13 to 16 to say something that you have probably never, ever, ever heard from a pastor. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. That's a shocker, isn't it? except for a half a dozen or so that he listed there. We come to verse 17 now. Another mountaintop of truth. A pillar of pillars. This is like the north sky in the the scripture. Paul answers all three of those ridiculous rhetorical questions that he just asked by saying, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. We could stop right there and camp out on that verse for the rest of today and that is what we are going to do i need this truth so badly our church desperately needs this truth if we are going to unite and stay united for the gospel Paul is using a literary literary tool here to make a very, very important point. He's comparing baptism to proclaiming the gospel. He's placing them side by side in the context of calling and mission and purpose. And he says, I wasn't called to baptize. I was called to preach Christ. Now, why was he saying that? What was the problem he was trying to correct in the early church? Regardless of our possible scenarios, here's what we know to be true the Corinthian believers were acting in their own ways as though baptism was just as important as salvation, just as important as the gospel. They were acting as though what religious teacher they followed was just as important as knowing the gospel truth and proclaiming it. Hear me on this one. It's very possible that they were acting as though their positions on the secondary doctrines of salvation and Christianity were just as important as the proclamation of the gospel itself. And Paul puts all this in proper perspective when he says, I'm not even here to baptize. That's huge for a faith like ours that sees only two ordinances in the scripture, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Allow me to follow Paul's line of thought here and fill in a few blanks. We're not here to build bigger buildings. We are here to proclaim the gospel. We're not here to figure out the best standards for entertainment and modest dress and which Christian college you should go to. We are here to proclaim the gospel. We're not here to talk people into church membership and Sunday school attendance if they're able. We're here to proclaim the gospel. We're not here to figure out which dating methods and education models are most spiritual. We're here to proclaim the gospel. We're not here to decide between Baptist and Presbyterian. We're here to proclaim the gospel. We're not here to, and you fill in the blank. We're here to what? Proclaim the gospel. I guess every person in this room understands and acknowledges this truth. The question is, do our lives show it? Sadly, many Christians act as though winning the responsibility sovereignty salvation debate was just as important as proclaiming the gospel itself. In the spirit of Paul, I dare say, I don't care how God gets them saved. Let's proclaim the gospel. Does that mean I don't care how God gets them saved? No. I care very much, but it pales. It pales in the light of how important it is for me to open my mouth and lovingly speak repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Does verse 17 mean that Paul doesn't care about baptizing people? No. He cares very much. For heaven's sake, Jesus commanded him to do it in the Great Commission. But Paul understands that this religious act of obedience, this religious act of proclaiming that I'm a follower of Christ, pales in the light of how important it is to proclaim the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ itself. Baptism can't save a person, but the gospel can. Amen. Are standards important? Is our child's education method important? Is church membership important? And why is financial stewardship management? Are buildings and Sunday school and entertainment choices important? Absolutely. But none of them will save us none of them will get us to heaven. None of them will make God any more or any less our heavenly Father. The sad problem is that so many Christians live as though they could, perhaps without realizing it. This causes great division in our relationships with others in the church. It distances us from others, sadly elevating us and lowering them in our mind. It causes us to think highly of our opinion and less of others. It gives us a subtle, or maybe not so subtle, sense of spiritual arrogance. No wonder it's so hard to get along in the church. But praise God, this can be fixed. What is the solution? Brothers and sisters in Christ, We as a church family must remember that all of these issues pale in the light of how important it is to proclaim the simple and pure message of salvation. The message of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. We learn here that evangelism Listen closely. Evangelism is a tonic that purifies and bonds and blesses the church. Who knows how many ailments the church suffers from because they aren't fulfilling their calling to specifically share the gospel? Yes. As I've mentioned, all of these other matters are important and must be tended to diligently and thoughtfully and wisely, but not at the expense of sharing the gospel, not at the expense of coming together in fellowship in Jesus Christ and for His purposes. I can't help but wonder if for all true believers... The greatest shock in heaven will not be us hearing, hearing the Lord say, Depart from me, I never knew you. That won't happen. That's the shock for the religious unbeliever. Perhaps our greatest shock will be that our religious affiliations, our doctrinally secondary high horses, our high standards, etc. Perhaps our greatest shock will be that God was not impressed when He looked and compared it to how little we lovingly proclaim the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, the ESV Study Bible calls this haughty devotion. The truth is, there's too much pride in the church. There's too much pride in our church. There's too much pride in me when it comes to the things of God. You should know that it's been a convicting week for me studying this text. I proclaim, have the privilege of proclaiming the gospel, the word, Christian teaching on a regular basis. God forbid that I place the emphasis where it should not be. I can't say that the proclamation of the gospel is immeasurably more important than all these other religious and practical duties and necessities. Actually, when I look at my life, I see that I'm holding some of these things too highly. So high that they come to some degree at the expense of just sharing the gospel. Perhaps you're with me on this. We need to know that it is wrongfully and painfully causing division in the church. It's wrongfully causing shame to the banner of Christ's name that we have the privilege of carrying. I asked the sound desk if they'd throw a picture up. That's 8.15, 8.15 for me this morning. I remind you, as I reminded myself, by the grace of God, don't run from suffering. Don't run from trial. God will use it to help you prioritize the gospel. Many of you have been in situations like this, and thank God, paramedics, took him by ambulance to Tacoma just as an extra precaution, and in no time the docs let him go. Febrile seizure. But one never knows what a day holds. We can't forget what is most important. Jesus Christ and his word reaching people. The sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ should dwarf what church you and I go to. It should dwarf what denominational camp we sit in, what teachers and pastors we like to listen to, what position we hold in this and that secondary doctrine. And I'm sure many of you notice, I'm using the word secondary on purpose. There is no compromise. There is no discussion on the major points of the Christian faith, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to Father but by Him, that no man can be justified by the works of the law, but that we are called to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no compromise, no discussion, no alternative to the bodily resurrection and second coming of our Savior. No compromise on the inspiration, inerrancy, and sufficiency of all Scripture. Indeed, these are the things that Paul rightly calls us to agree upon in Christ and to have no division, and that we be united as one in the same mind and judgment. But at the the heart of it is our unity with and for the gospel. Let me be quick to say there are more than one way to just to proclaim the gospel. It does come through how we live our lives and the choices we make. Oh, but if these things do not point at the proclamation of the gospel, if the way you dress and the language you choose is not to point others to Christ, then I fear the hope that is misplaced in these things we do. At the heart of the unity Paul is calling us to is a unity with and for the salvation message being proclaimed. Let's explore another dimension of this whole subject for just a few minutes and then we'll close. So what are we supposed to do with our differences? Those differences of secondary matters. Those times where I don't fully agree with a brother or sister in Christ when it comes to differences in standards and life choices, or maybe even secondary doctrines. Here's the broad relational question I'd like us to consider. Is it possible that even our distinctions, our differences on those lesser matters can unite us for Christ? Is that possible? Is it possible that our differences can actually bond us tighter to the gospel, and for the gospel. Can our differences drive us to the Word of God? Can our differences encourage us to encourage each other to the Word of God? By the grace of God, absolutely yes. When our differences reveal how much greater our passion is for sharing the gospel, that revealing and affirming of right prioritization will increase our respect for each other. Not only increase our respect, but encourage us to go back to the Word and to continue to search the matter together. When our love and respect for each other proves stronger than our secondary differences, that revealing and affirming of right prioritization will unite us for the gospel. How beautiful to see two brothers wrestling through the responsibility of man and God's predestination in regards to salvation. Who then go to the Tacoma mission and sit down side by side and open the scriptures to John 3:16 and ask a homeless man, "Do you know what Jesus has done for you?" How beautiful to see two people who see differently on financial management, but both give cheerfully and sacrificially to the proclamation of the gospel. How beautiful to see two sisters in the Lord who choose different methods of schooling their children, but that that difference pales in the light of their burden, that their children be saved and love God and serve Him all their days. That's beautiful. Beautiful that is uniting in a powerful way. That is uniting in a world where everyone else's differences divide them. When we can agree that we have a higher calling. On the contrary, it's when we argue over differences as though they were equals to the gospel itself, it's then that we divide and pride wins the day. It's then that the gang mentality begins to creep back into the church. I suspect that there are a few religious high horses that some of us need to get off of and get off fast. I suspect there are a few banners we need to set down because we can't carry them and the cross at the same time. Again, don't don't hear me wrong on this. It's not that these issues are not important. It's that we've made them too important. All at the expense of the gospel and unity of the church with Christ. Is it possible that our secondary doctrinal differences and our different choices in Christ likeness and sanctification? can actually unite us even stronger for the gospel. Absolutely, by the grace of God. Listen to these words from Barnes' commentary. This is his prayer, his desire for the church. That they may love each other much, even where they do not see alike. That they may give each other credit for honesty and sincerity, and may be willing to suppose that others may be right and are honest even when their own views differ. The foundation of Christian unity is not so much laid in uniformity of intellectual perception as in right feelings of the heart. And I would say that not feelings like we think of them today, but rather dispositions, Christ-like attitudes of the heart. And the proper way to produce union in the church of God is not to begin by attempting to equalize all intellects, on the bed of Proc- Procrustes. How many of you know who Procrastes is? I didn't either. I had to look it up. He's the villainous son, according to white Wikipedia, he's the villainous son of Poseidon in Greek mythology who forces travelers to fit into his bed by stretching their bodies or cutting off their legs. It was torturous murder. And now that we've totally lost our focus on Barnes' commentary, <laughs> let me start that sentence over. The proper way to produce union in the church of God is not to begin by attempting to equalize all intellects on the bed of procrasties, forcing others to think like us, but to produce supreme love to God and elevated and pure Christian love to all who bear the image and the name of the Redeemer. You'd think Barnes had just finished studying the first part of 1 Corinthians 1. And he had, actually, this is his commentary on verse 10. (laughs) What beautiful wisdom we find in the Word of God. Matter of fact, next week we're going to look at that wisdom. Paul says in verses 17 and 19, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Those are the words of the Lord. Next week, we'll look at a clever man versus a wise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your ways and your thoughts are so much higher and better infinitely than ours. And we're humbled and we're joyed, Lord, that you and your goodness would share your thoughts and your ways with us. Surely, ways of living that are better than our own ideas, ways for living that are better than the Best the world has to offer. Lord, you all not only gave us unity in Christ as a matter of our salvation and our position for God, but you gave us the means to unity in this life. The side by side brothers and sisters in Christ serving together in spite of what minor differences we share, there is no divide, no disagreement. On who truth is and its value to us Lord help us to see the truth of God his message to man the message of love repentance faith and forgiveness help us to see that message as being supreme Lord give us discernment in how we might live more like Christ let us not walk away from this casting aside the convictions you give us, but Lord, help us to recognize their place in the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a union with you that supersedes our differences, our weaknesses, our faults. As Paul said in the verses prior, help us to thank you always regarding the salvation that you have given us and one another. Lord, today, help us to remind it to be proclaimers of such wondrous salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.